Well, good morning to you all again. It's great to be with you. Great to see everybody here this morning and a special uh, welcome to those who are watching online at home all over uh, the UK probably. Um, And uh, great to have you joining with us this morning. We are continuing in our series looking in Exodus as we are working our way through the book of Exodus and seeing how God chose the nation of Israel and then began to create them as a nation with... uh, uh, promises and an agreement, a covenant, and then laws, and then a land, uh, and and so on. And Stuart last week um, helped us to see about that. And in uh, chapter 19, as they got to Mount Sinai, and as they were there, and God descended on the mountain. And then today we're going to continue that. And we're just going to take a pause. We're not actually going to be looking at Exodus itself. Just going to try and get our heads around. A really important issue before we then launch on over the next 10 weeks into the Ten Commandments themselves. And we're going to look at the Ten Commandments one uh, per week over the next um, 10 weeks. So three months after the Israelites had left Egypt, they reached the foot of Mount Sinai. And there's a photo there of Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is today in what is in between modern day Egypt. It's actually part of Egyptian territory, but it's in between what you would kind of think of as Egypt and also in between sort of Saudi Arabia and it's right there to the south of what is modern day Israel and as Stuart described for us last week uh, Moses was instructed by God as they as, as there's probably two and a half million people reached the foot of Mount Sinai as they camped there and Moses was instructed by God to tell the people not to touch the mountain as, as God descended there on the mountain and as God met with Moses And there he gave Moses the laws by which they were required to live by from now on. The nation of Israel, to be a nation, you need a land, you need uh, law, and you need people. They have the people, now God gives them the law. The next thing will come in 40 years when they actually go into the land. So God gave them this law to live by, which they were entering into as this, this covenant or agreement that he was entering into with the people of Israel. And these laws themselves were divided into two groups. There was which were inscribed upon these two tablets of stone actually uh, inscribed by God himself not by Moses and then there was a whole package of secondary laws which Moses then had to write down and we've got these recorded for us in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and then again Deuteronomy uh, Deuteronomy just means second law it's a second giving of the law 40 years later they're reminded of everything and so we've got these secondary laws as well as the Ten Commandments written down for us in the Uh, Books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Ten Commandments themselves were split into two groups, or as you look at them, you can see there's kind of two different subjects, really. The first four are about a person's relationship and interaction uh, with God or towards God, a person's duty to God. And the remaining six are about a person's interaction, a person's duty with their fellow human beings. The secondary laws, which followed the Ten Commandments, covered all sorts of aspects of life. Just like today, we've got all sorts of different kind of laws in the UK covering all kind of different things. There was the, this was the same in Israel. They needed uh, laws to live by. They needed structure and order. So there were laws regarding servants and injuries and property and social responsibility and justice and mercy and what you could do on the Sabbath day. There were laws and regulations about clean and unclean food, and we're going to look at that a little bit later. There was uh, regulations about infectious diseases, very topical 
at the moment, isn't it, with uh, COVID. There were uh, regulations about sexual relationships. There was a whole list of uh, punishments for sin when people broke all these various laws. And then Moses was given instructions for the religious and the ceremonial law, uh, the ceremonial life, really, of the nation. He was instructed to build a portable temple. It's called the tabernacle. And once they got into the land some years later, eventually that portable uh, structure was replaced with a physical fixed temple there in Jerusalem. And as well as the tabernacle itself, this kind of big tent, this portable temple, he was also given instructions for the furniture and all the different things that went in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle and then later the temple was to be where God's presence was specially experienced. God is present everywhere, but he was specially encountered by the people of Israel right at the center of the nation's life there in the tabernacle, there in in the temple. And then God gave uh, to Moses and instructed him uh, various types of sacrificial offerings, which were how they were to to worship God in the tabernacle, in the temple, uh, as well as feast times throughout the year, harvest festivals and and so on, and uh, religious festivals. And, and God said, look, if you keep all of these laws in this agreement I'm entering into with you, then I will bless you, and you will be in that land forever. But if you fail to keep them, then I will judge you. So there was a, an agreement, a kind of two-way street. If you keep these laws, Israel, then I will bless you. If you don't, there will be judgments. And if you go to the book of Deuteronomy, when God repeats the law again, There's a whole list of blessings and curses. If you obey the law, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll face my judgment. So what relevance then, before we kind of plow on over these next 10 weeks and look at the Ten Commandments in specific, uh, specifically rather than all the secondary laws, but the Ten Commandments we're going to be looking at, before we do that, what relevance then has that law that God gave to Moses, to the people of Israel, 3,400 and so years ago, what on earth is that relevant to us today? Why are we going to spend these next 10 weeks looking at the Old Testament law? Lots of Christians get confused and lots of people get confused about, well, you know, the stuff that's in the Old Testament, how does that relate to us as followers of Jesus today? Are we meant to keep it? Are we meant to obey it? And if so, which bits and which bits do we don't and all that kind of stuff. So it's really important that we understand our relationship as, as followers of Jesus, as believers in Jesus with the Old Testament and with specifically the rules and regulations of the Old Covenant. As, and, and keep those thoughts in mind then as we go through the Ten Commandments specifically over the next 10 weeks. Well, to answer those questions, we need to firstly understand why God gave the law to Moses in the first place. And the law was given to the nation of Israel, firstly, through Moses, for a number of reasons. Firstly, and, and there should be an outline on your seat, and there's, there should be COVID-safe pens and there's uh, things, if, the space is there if you want to write down. If you don't, if that's a distraction, don't worry. But it's there if you find it helpful. And everything will be up on the screen for us. So firstly, God gave the law to Moses to provide order and peace for the people of Israel. It was to give them structure and, and peace and, and kind of law and order. Every society needs law and order. And then secondly, to protect their health. Okay, So there's lots of different aspects to the law. But kind of first... Uh, it's about order, it's about peace, and then it's about the health of the people. The Bible says that God is a God of order and peace, and if societies don't have order and structure, then you end up with anarchy and chaos. We've seen that, haven't we, internationally this week. Every society needs law and order, and when people don't, sub- don't submit to the laws of the land, then you have chaos and you have anarchy, and God hates chaos and anarchy. The Ten Commandments are the basis of lots of the laws today here in the UK, aren't they? 
and lots of the secondary laws that we, we're not going to look at uh, over the next 10 weeks, but if you read on, lots of the secondary laws about protecting people's health in Israel or paying the right wages to servants and all that kind of thing, they'll make a lot of sense to us, and we can see the kind of point behind those. You need these kind of things to keep a society functioning properly, and you need health laws to keep people safe and so on. But some of the other laws and rules that you may or may not be aware of, particularly around kind of foods, you know, which foods were clean and unclean and all this kind of stuff, they might seem a little bit strange to us. Why did the law God gave to Moses include, for instance, banning the Israelites from certain kinds of foods? And what is all that about? And, and, and what's the relevance of that for us today? Well, there's two reasons. The first is that the animals that they were not allowed to uh, use as food were more prone to disease. That's one of the reasons which in turn, of course, would have affected the Israelites' health. But the main reason and the real reason, the overriding reason, was to do with holiness and God's holiness. See, God is holy, which means that he's separate, he is unique, he is different. And at the, at, at the heart of that uniqueness and separateness is his sinlessness, his perfection. And God consistently throughout the Bible calls those that follow him, calls his people to be holy and to be different, to be set apart from the world around them and from the, sinless, the sinful world that's around them. When sin entered the world, mankind totally turned its back upon God. And people began to worship idols instead of the one true God. And we're going to see that in the Ten Commandments. People worship idols made of stone and wood instead of the one true God. They did then and they still do today. And in the nations around Israel at the time Moses was given the law, it, it, it was common for the nations around Israel to worship a god called Molech. And part of that worship was to sacrifice their own children in fire. I mean, it, it sounds staggering to us today, but this was part and parcel of, of how people lived. And it's unbelievable that that was how they lived. And the people of the world then, as they do now indulged in every kind of sexual immorality, every kind of depravity, striking right at the heart of God's design for humanity and what it means to be human. So when God chose the nation of Israel to be his people and to represent him here on earth, God gave the people of Israel food laws that acted like a kind of wall around them. Okay? He gave them these food laws and some of the other ceremonial laws, and it kind of acted like a wall, a barrier around Israel. And that wall or that barrier was to separate them from the nations around them, the, the utterly depraved nations around them. It was to try and keep them apart so that the people of Israel wouldn't engage in the same kind of sinful practices that the nations around them were engaging in. So if you couldn't eat certain foods, and so if Rob's a Gentile and I'm a Jew and I can't eat with Rob because he eats foods that are unclean and I can't eat those foods, it keeps me separate from Gentile Rob, who's a really wicked, evil sinner, and I'm trying to stay holy. Of course, we all know that's true anyway. But, um, but So you can see the point that those food laws keep a wall, a barrier between Jew and non-Jew. And as you follow the history of Israel through the Old Testament, you can see how necessary it was. Because whenever Israel ignored those laws, they got dragged into evil and debauchery. They fell into sin and evil as they were influenced by the nations around them. So the Old Testament law, write this down, particularly some of these food laws, which seem particularly strange to us today, was given to separate the people of Israel and it was given to protect them from sin, and it was given to help them live holy lives. That was one of the reasons for the law being given, okay? It was to separate them. It was this wall, this barrier to separate the people of Israel, to protect them from sin, 
and to help them live holy lives. But this so-called wall had its limitations. So firstly, it could never bring real holiness because even when God's people are physically separated from unbelievers, even when, we, even when God's people in the Old Testament were physically separated from the Gentile nations, they were still prone to sin because sin is in our hearts. It's not just an external thing. It's a heart problem, isn't it? It's an internal problem. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit to come into our lives, to come and change us from the inside not just so that we conform outwardly to a set of rules and regulations. We need to be born again. We need to be renewed internally. So that was one of the problems with this wall, this barrier. Secondly, the other problem was that it led to the Israelites sometimes thinking that they were superior to the Gentiles. And that wasn't the case at all. It was simply that in his sovereignty, in his grace, God had chosen the people of Israel to be a race of people to represent him here on earth. It wasn't because they were better. It wasn't because the Gentiles were worse. It was simply that God in his wisdom had chosen them to be the people that would represent him. But because they saw themselves as separate, they began often to see themselves as superior. And that wasn't the case. They also became confused between internal moral and spiritual holiness on the one hand and the, the outward ceremonial holiness on the other hand. And most of them forgot that these outward ceremonial laws that they were told to keep were there to remind them how important it was that they were holy internally. The outward was just a tool to help them actually sort themselves out internally. The outward thing wasn't the thing in itself. And they forgot that these food laws were to keep them separate from nations around them that would pollute their inner spiritual uh, and moral purity. And they often became obsessed with the outward and with the ceremonial and neglected the internal, moral, and spiritual life. And when we see Jesus here, uh, uh, 1,400 or so years later after the law was given, Jesus attacks the Jewish people. He attacks the Pharisees for living like this. In Mark 7, he pointed out to the Jews that it's, it's not food that makes us unclean, because food just goes into the stomach and comes back out of the body. This is what he said. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. A real pivotal moment in God's dealings with people. So it's the evil and the sin within a person that makes a person unclean in God's eyes. It's not outward things like the kind of food a person eats. And what happened right throughout their history was that even when they did observe these outward food laws, they mostly ignored then how uh, impure their hearts really were. Jesus actually called the, the Pharisees like whitewashed tombs. He says, you know, you look all good on the outside, you're ticking all these boxes, but actually you're ignoring what, they, what these laws are really for, which is to try and help you stay holy internally. And, you know, even as followers of Jesus today, we can fall into the same trap. We can say and do all the right things. We can outwardly tick the boxes. We can, you know, kind of conform to, to, to external behavior that's expected of followers of Jesus. We can look good on a Sunday. We can tick all the right boxes. We, you know, we use the right words, all that kind of stuff. Yet internally, which nobody else can see, we can still be full of sin and still allow sin to be in control of us. And we need to be really careful that we don't become legalists. We don't become obsessed with rules and regulations and what we can and can't do. Because quite often when we become obsessed with external laws and rules and all that kind of stuff, we often then, just like the people of Israel did, we, we neglect the heart. And we, it's so easy for us to become self-righteous and judgmental and say, well, I don't do that kind of stuff. But actually, internally, our hearts can be far from God. 
Of course, the great thing is for us today is that if we've trusted in Jesus, if we've put our faith and trust in Jesus, we're now free from these ceremonial food laws. We've just read in Mark 7 how from that moment on, Jesus declared all foods clean. And we're going to see how and why we're free from those ceremonial and those food laws later on. But there's another and there's a more important reason again why God gave the Old Testament law. And for this we need to go to the New Testament and see what Paul says. Paul says this in Romans 3 verse 20. He says, through the law we become conscious of our sin. Through the law, the Old Testament law, we become conscious of our sin. So when we read the Ten Commandments, when we read all of those secondary rules and regulations throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, it shows us what sin is. It shows us what God views is sin, and therefore it shows us how sinful we are. As we read the law, starting with the Ten Commandments and then all the secondary rules and regulations, it shows us that we're incapable of keeping these laws. It, it defines what sin is for us, but then subsequently it just reveals to us, doesn't it, how incapable we are of keeping those rules and regulations. And it shows us, therefore, that we need help. We need somebody to come and help us because we can't keep this standard. We need someone to come and help us get right with God because we are incapable of following this law. So through, these, through the Old Testament law, we become conscious of our sin. So the law is good. Galatians 3.24, Paul says again, So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. So the Old Testament law shows us what God demands of us. It shows us that we're sinners. It shows us then also that we're incapable of reaching this perfect standard, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it therefore shows us we need help. We need a savior. The Old Testament law therefore points towards, points us towards the one person who can deal with our sin. And of course the Old Testament and through all the prophets is then full of all these pointers and all these prophecies about someone coming to be that solution. And that person of course was Jesus. So the law leads us to Jesus. It, it, it helps us. It's like a school teacher that helps a student find the right answer. And the right answer is Jesus. The law is like a school teacher. So the last and the most important reason that the law was given, write this down, is to show us our need of Jesus. So the law is a good thing. We don't need to keep it. We're free from the law. We're under faith now. But the law is good. It shows us our need of Jesus. And once we've realized our need of Jesus, once we realize that we need him to be our savior, that we've fallen short, we're sinners, we've, we're condemned under the law, and we realize we need to put our faith and our trust in him, then what is our relationship with that Old Testament law then as believers in Jesus? We, we've seen kind of why it was given to Israel. We've seen that we are free from that law. We've seen, though, that it's good because it helps us realize our need of Jesus. So, so what? What do we do with all those laws and rules and regulations? What does that look like for us? Well, we've just read in Galatians 3.24 that if we've put our faith in Christ, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. We're free, free from the Old Testament law. And in Ephesians 2, Paul says this about two of the things that took place when Jesus died on the cross and two of the ways in which we are free from the Old Testament law. This is what he says. For he himself, that's Jesus he's talking about, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, that's Jew and Gentile, Israel and non-Israel, he's made the two groups one, 
and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. That's the food laws he's talking about, this dividing wall. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. That's the church he's talking about. Out of the two, out of Jew and Gentile. Thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So Jesus, by being the only man, uh, being the only person who could ever fulfill all of those Old Testament laws, and he did, and being the only one who's ever capable of doing so, he's now set aside the aspects of the law that kept Jews separated from Gentiles. So now when a person trusts in Jesus, it doesn't matter whether they are a Jew or a Gentile by birth, they're no longer Jew or Gentile, they are now a new people, they are the church they're no longer separated by these, this dividing wall of hostility, these food laws. Instead, they are one people. And all of those ceremonial and food laws have been done away with and rendered unnecessary because of Jesus' death on the cross. And because we're not part of the nation of Israel and we are instead citizens of heaven, we're not bound by all those civil laws that are in the Old Testament. We are not Israel, so we're not under that covenant with God. We are the church. We're in a new covenant, a new agreement, a new relationship with God. Paul goes further in Colossians 2.14 where he says this, that Jesus cancelled the written code that was against us. Can we have that verse up, please? Jesus cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. So the written code of the law was cancelled and set aside through Jesus' death on the cross. And we're free from having to obey it. We're incapable of keeping the law, but Jesus did keep the law, every single aspect of it. And so when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus and in his perfection, in the fact that he did keep all the law and that he died as a perfect substitute in our place, we are then justified or made right. That's what justified means. We are then made right with God. Galatians 2 verse 16 says this, So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith or made right with God by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. No one will be made right with God. And that verse sums up what we call the gospel, the package of good news that we believe in. It's the good news that by trusting in Jesus, we can be made right with God. We can be justified and we can have, therefore, a relationship with him. Paul says it's impossible for that to happen by keeping the law. Because we're incapable of keeping it. But when we put our faith in Jesus as that perfect substitute sacrifice, the only one who ever did keep the law in its entirety, then we're made right with God. God forgives us. He declares us to be innocent, and then he declares us to be righteous. In other words, we now meet his standard, not because of our efforts, but because of what Jesus has done. And because we put our faith in what Jesus has done, God thinks of that righteousness, that perfection, as belonging to us. He imputes it to us. He gives it to us. He sees us now as being as perfect as Jesus. So this morning, if you've put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, instead of God looking at you and seeing your sin, he now sees the perfection of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That this morning, as he looks at you, despite what, how you might have let God down this week, God looks at you and he sees the perfection of Jesus. Phenomenal. He looks at you, and even though you still sin, because of, God, because of Jesus, God doesn't see your sin. He simply sees 
the perfection of Jesus. And that's how we can have a relationship with God. It's totally through God's grace. Grace is treating someone in a way they don't deserve to be treated. And God has treated us with amazing grace. Our relationship with God is solely on the basis of our faith in Jesus. There's nothing that we need to do in order to have a relationship with God. We don't need to keep any of these laws. But you might be thinking, well, you know, if that's the case, if I'm totally free from all these laws, then, then surely I'm just free to sin and I can just do what I want because I'm, I'm, I'm right with God now. So, hey, party time. I can just live totally free from law and from rules. I don't need to obey anything. I can live as I want. But that's missing the point. Paul says in response to that kind of argument in Romans 6 verse 1, he says this, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? That grace may increase. He's just uh, argued that every time we sin, God covers our sin with his grace. We can't out-sin God's grace, no matter how much we keep letting God down. Because we put our faith in Jesus, his grace just keeps coming to us. So Paul says, well, if that's the case, and if grace is such a good thing, wouldn't it make sense then to sin more so we get more grace? And he says, no, that's such a false, wrong argument. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then in verse 15, he says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but we're under grace? By no means. To deliberately carry on sinning once we've become a Christian is to abuse God's grace, his undeserved favor. But even though God doesn't want us to sin, we all know, don't we, that we do still sin. We still let God down. We still don't do what we should do. And we still choose to do things that we shouldn't do. But if and when... We do that, and and when that happens, God's undeserved grace, because of Jesus, because of our faith in Jesus, just keeps being poured out upon us. It doesn't change how God feels about us when we sin, nor does it affect our position before God, because it's not about our works, it's not about what we do, it's about what Jesus has done and the fact that we've put our faith in him. But Paul's point is this, that is not therefore an excuse to go out and sin. When we become Christians, when we became Christians, we died to our our old way of life. Now we've got a new heart. We've got a new life, a new identity. The Holy Spirit has come to live within us. And so now we follow Jesus. So the question then is, so what rules should we follow then? Well, we follow the laws of Jesus. Not because in doing so it'll get us to heaven, but because we love him. It's our response to what he's done for us. Jesus said this in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. So our behavior now as followers of Jesus is meant to be driven by our love for Jesus, which in turn is a response to his love for us. It's not to try and earn God's favor. We already have God's favor. But what does Jesus command then? What are his commands? Well, it's there from Matthew to John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are full, the the, the four gospels are full of the commands of Jesus. But it's summed up for us, if you like, in Luke 10, verse 27, where Jesus says this. He's asked which commandment is the most important. And Jesus says, look, these are the two commandments. And this sums everything up. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Love God with every bit of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. That encompasses everything, doesn't it? Love God with your whole being and treat those around you as you would wish to be treated. And of course, Jesus then goes on through the Gospels to elaborate on what that means. What does it look like to put God first in everything? What does it look like to love God with your whole being? What does it look like to love my neighbor? 
He says these words in Matthew 7, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Talking about the whole of the Old Testament there. When we love God, when we love our neighbor, when we do those two things, then we'll we are fulfilling the Ten Commandments. We're fulfilling the whole of the Old Testament law and all of the Old Testament teachings. It's the whole of the Old Testament summed up. Love God, love people. So what relevance then does the Old Testament law have for us today? Well, we know that the ceremonial and the food laws have been set aside and all foods have been declared clean by Jesus. We know that as believers in Jesus, we're part of a new nation. We're part of the church. So we're free from all those society laws that God gave to Israel. We are not Israel. We're the church, a new people. We don't even need to keep the Ten Commandments to have a relationship with God because we've already seen that we're sinners and we're incapable of keeping those Ten Commandments. So we don't need to keep any of the law and we know it can't save us. Only faith in Christ can save us. What the Old Testament law and the kind of relevance for us today is this, it helps us to see our need and our total reliance on Jesus as our Savior. Write that on your outline. The law helps us understand what sin is, and it helps us see how God views it. And of course, the elaborations of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament often go further and, and elaborate on that and, and the definition of what sin is. So the law is a good thing. The law, we're free from it, but it helps us understand how God views sin. So do we need to study the Old Testament law? If we're Christians, do we, can we not just stick with the New Testament? No, we need to study the Old Testament in its entirety. Why? Well, partly because it gives us a better understanding of what sin is and a better understanding of how God views sin. And when we see the abhorrence that God shows towards particular sins and the punishments that he prescribes under the Old Testament law to the people of Israel, it should help us then take a much more serious approach to sin. Because we can see how God views certain sins. God does not see all sin as the same. That is, that is nonsense. Every sin, the smallest sin will separate us from God, but not all sins are the same. And we've only got to see the way that God uh, prescribes different punishments for different sins to see that God doesn't view all sins in, in, in the same way. They will all separate us from God, but some are more serious than others in terms of what they do and, and so on. So when we study the Old Testament law, it, it should help us to take a much more serious approach to sin should help us then strive for greater internal purity and holiness because it's only because of Jesus that we don't face the judgments of the law that God gave to Israel. So we're free from ceremonial regulations, the food regulations, the health regulations and the civil laws. They were temporary, they were specifically for Israel at that time but that still leaves us with what's sometimes called the moral law and the moral law is summed up for us in the Ten Commandments which we're going to look at over the next 10 weeks and the Ten Commandments are summed up there for us in Luke, 20, Luke 10, 27 by Jesus. Love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus then elaborated on and repeated and reinforced nine, nine out of the Ten Commandments. The only one that he, he didn't was the Sabbath, was keeping the Sabbath. And we'll look at what that's about in a few weeks' time. So we're left with nine of the Ten Commandments. And when Jesus taught on the Ten Commandments, he actually intensified them in the Sermon on the Mount. And he actually shows that he expects even more from us, not just an outward external uh, kind of adherence to these things, but a really deep internal thing. It's not just enough to say, oh, I have never killed anybody. Jesus said, if you hate someone in your heart, you're guilty of breaking that commandment. 
And in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles repeat and they develop parts of the Old Testament law, the moral law, showing that whilst we don't get right with God and go to heaven by keeping them, God still expects us to live by the principles of them and and to put them into practice in our lives. One example of that is the whole issue of human sexuality and sexual behavior. Jesus and the apostles carry over the Old Testament teachings and ethics on sex and expect us to live by them. And so we choose to follow the Ten Commandments, and specifically nine of them, and, and we choose to follow the aspects of the Old Testament law that Jesus and the apostles developed for us there in the New Testament, not so that we can get right with God and go to heaven, but because we love God and because we want to live lives that please him and bring him glory. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, everything is permissible for the believer, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. So we're not bound by the Old Testament law. We're free from the law. Instead, we need to kind of put our brains into gear and look at every situation we come across and ask ourselves, this might be permissible, but is it beneficial? Will it bring glory to God? I'm free from keeping laws. I don't need to do this. But is this going to be beneficial for me? Is it, going to be, is it going to benefit my relationship with God? Is it going to be constructive in my relationship with my neighbor? Will it help me know and love God more? Will it benefit others? Will it help me love my neighbor? That's the law that as Christians we're called to live by. Romans 13, 8 to 10 says, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not cover, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And the Bible calls loving our neighbor the law of Christ. Galatians 6 verse 2 says, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. So how do we do that? How can we keep Jesus' command to love God and love our neighbor? Well, as believers of Jesus, we're under a new covenant, a new agreement. And that was brought into being when Jesus died there on the cross. And instead of an external list of rules written on tablets of stone, under this new agreement, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within the hearts of those who trust in Jesus. And he gives us a new heart, a new spiritual heart. He changes us from the inside out. Hebrews 8 verse 10, quoting God, says this, This is the covenant I will make, this new covenant. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside a person so so that God's laws are now written on our hearts, not on external tablets of stone, as the Ten Commandments were. Under the old covenant, God revealed what he expected from his people, but they had no internal power to keep those laws. In fact, because of sin, they were unable to. But now if we've trusted in Jesus, we have that internal power. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We are under a new agreement. And because the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts, we have a new internal desire to live God's ways. And and if somebody professes faith in Christ but then doesn't have any internal desire to live and please God, then you've got to question whether they've truly trusted in Jesus. There will at the very least be a new desire to please God. That's because the Holy Spirit writes the commands of God on our hearts. And that new ability is given by the Holy Spirit to us. That's why we don't need, for instance, food laws to keep us separate from sin and live holy lives. Because it's the Holy Spirit now within us that gives us the power and the strength and the ability to live holy lives. If we choose to. So as Christians, we are no longer bound to keep the law that was given to Moses. It's helpful in that it shows us how holy God is. It shows us what sin is. And it shows us that we need a saviour. 
But we don't need to keep it in order to get right with God and get to heaven. That comes through trusting in Jesus and what he's done for us in his life and on the cross and rising again. And we don't need to keep the kind of society laws day by day. Instead, we're to, we're to, we're to follow what the Bible calls the law of Christ. We love God. And we love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's the model for living as Christians in the new covenant, to love God and to love our neighbor. Instead of having an external list of rules and regulations written on tablets of stone, the law, we have, if we've trusted in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts. And as we spend time each day focusing on Jesus and reading our Bibles and, and not focusing on those external tablets of stone and focusing instead on what God wants for us, then the Holy Spirit moves us and he directs us to ways in which we behave which will help us love God and love others. It's that kind of inner prompting, that voice of the Holy Spirit that we experience. And he does that, of course, partly through reading the Bible to, to help us to connect with those things. And not only does he direct us and show us what those ways of living are, he gives us the power to do that through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So as followers of Jesus... We are free from the Old Testament law. We are saved by God's grace and not by what we do. So let's live lives that are all about loving God and all about loving our neighbor. That's what it means to follow Jesus in response to God's amazing grace demonstrated to us through Jesus' death for us there on the cross. We choose to live in ways that please him and bring him glory. We choose to love him. We choose to love our neighbor. Let's pray and in the band are going to sing. Father, we praise you for the law. We thank you that it reveals your holiness. We thank you that it reveals um, uh, our sinfulness. It shows us our need of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that if, and I pray this morning, if there's anybody this morning watching that has not acknowledged their moral, bank, spiritual bankruptcy under the law, that this morning they will realize that and they will turn to Jesus and put their faith and trust in him this morning. Uh, Father, I pray that we would, each one of us, be aware of our need of a savior. Father, thank you that you have sent the solution for our sin, that the Lord Jesus has come and in outrageous and amazing grace you have poured out your love upon us as the Lord Jesus died for us there on the cross thank you thank you that as we put our trust in you we have a new heart we have a new internal ability to live in ways that please you help us to do that help us to live each day not as legalists but as people who are free from law but driven and motivated by your grace we praise you for your grace we thank you for it we worship you this morning and we pray this in Jesus name Amen.